Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt. The tragedy in Afghanistan is on everyone's mind. A lot is being written and said about how the Biden administration handled the withdrawal. One example from an editorial in The Economist is this quote, If the propagandists of the Taliban had scripted the collapse of America's 20-year mission to reshape Afghanistan, they could not have come up with more harrowing images. For this episode, I was fortunate to interview Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired British Army officer. Colonel Kemp was an infantry commander and in 2003 commanded British forces in Afghanistan serving alongside U.S. forces. He has spoken out in support of granting asylum in the United Kingdom to Afghan interpreters who had worked with British Armed Forces. Colonel Kemp's insight and perspective is very interesting. Take a listen. I think you'll agree. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Richard, it's such a delight to have you here. You know, you speak out on so many important issues around the world, and you have a deep experience in Afghanistan, having served there alongside of U.S. forces. I'd like to understand from you how you see things today after this 20-year history of America and others being in Afghanistan. Uh, and before we get to the departure of American forces from Afghanistan, what do you think has transpired since you actively served there? Well, thank you, Jason. It's a real pleasure to, to join you. And um, I think the contrast between when I was in Kabul in 2003, in the early stages of this campaign, and today couldn't be greater. When I arrived there, uh, and during the entire time I was there, I never met an Afghan who didn't welcome us, wasn't glad to see us, wasn't pleased and grateful that we'd unshackled them from the Taliban regime, and also wasn't um, completely optimistic. They were very optimistic about the future. They'd been promised uh, greater freedom, which they developed during the 20 years that we were there. They um, they experienced some kind of human rights, at least far more than they'd had in the past and equal opportunities, including, you know, many, many women, generations of women going through school or girls going through school and playing a major part in the life of the society, political and social, um, as well as, you know, every other aspect. And so that was, you know, the, the only people that I ever met that weren't, weren't pleased to see us were terrorists that we were trying to uh, trying to deal with. But apart from that, uh, it, it was it was really a very, um, I, I think if, I would say the, the environment there was very happy and optimistic. Uh, today, of course, it, just in recent days, we've seen Afghans clinging to the side of U.S. aircraft taking off, falling to their death through the sky which indicates the, the absolute contrast, the, the, the visceral fear that so many of them feel today, knowing what the Taliban was like in the past, and also 
what they expect it to be like in the future. Uh, and, and I was speaking the other day to a journalist, or I was listening to a journalist in Kabul. He's still in Kabul, an Afghan journalist, who was saying, we were in paradise, and now we're in hell, which I think really sums up very well the, uh, the immense contrast uh, in those two situations that's occurred over around about a 20-year period. Let's roll the clock back to when you served. Tell the audience what it was like when you got there and what you and the U.S. were able to try to achieve when you got there. How messy was it to get to the point that you know you just described, which is at this point, lives are actually much better until the Taliban with lightning speed took over again. Bring us back to 2003. As I said, I was there in the very early days and after in the 2001 lightning victory between U.S. Special Forces, U.S. Air Forces, and uh, the Northern Alliance, who together very rapidly ejected the Taliban and, uh, and Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan. Um, and during my period, it was actually a, rel- a period of relative calm and quiet in Kabul and in most of the country. There was still quite a bit of fighting going on in the southern areas, but most of the country was fairly quiet. The main problems that we faced uh, were, were dealing with warlords that had, that had had control of large parts of the country. And it was our responsibility, partially our responsibility, to disarm and reintegrate the warlords and their militias, um, preventing them from being a sort of major threat to the, the, the government that was beginning to form and the armed forces that were beginning to form at the time. We were also involved in early stage of training the Afghan national security forces. Um, and in addition to that, we faced terrorist attacks. There, were, there weren't, weren't a vast number of terrorist attacks, but there were quite a lot. They were particularly from Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. The, the Taliban really was not heavily active in the military side at that point. You mentioned the terrorist attacks, which of course was the justification for the United States and others going in there. Today... Technology has changed. The world has changed tremendously. Do you think we can prevent these terrorist attacks by not having boots on the ground there, given the other tools that we have? Or are we all, as the world, at greater risk because we are no longer there? Yeah, we, we went in, as you as you point out, for, for one purpose, really, and that was to uh, destroy the destroy Al Qaeda, or at least remove Al Qaeda from the problem, which was very successfully done in those early days, and uh, to get rid of the Taliban because the, you know the Taliban obviously had been complicit and had enabled the 9/11 attacks, and we remained there because they remained a threat. That was the purpose of the 20-year campaign: was to protect our countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, other Western countries from a repeat of the type of attack we'd seen on 9-11. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't to turn um, the, you know, to turn uh, Afghanistan into Connecticut or something like that, or nor, nor was it to uh, bring on human rights and equal rights for women and democracy. That wasn't the purpose. Those were byproducts, but they were, of course, very, very useful byproducts for Afghanistan. But that wasn't the reason we were there. We were there to deal with the terrorists. And that situation has not changed now. The terrorists we fought um, you know, very, very effectively to a large extent over the years, uh, obviously with some mistakes made and many problems occurring. 
and being unable to completely remove the terrorist threat. Uh, and, and then in latter years, the Afghan National Security Forces uh, did the brunt of the fighting in recent years. They, that we haven't been fighting. The Americans haven't really been fighting, except really by the use of air power and special forces. Most of the fighting has been done by the Ash Afghan National Security Forces, who in just the last seven years sustained an incredible 50,000 dead killed fighting the Taliban. And that's, you know, in British Army terms, that's two thirds of the current whole strength of the British Army, a phenomenal number of brave men and women killed fighting against the Taliban. Um, but the problem remains, the problem is not gone. And therefore, to me, it makes no sense for us to withdraw at this stage, um, particularly considering we've got such a, we had such a relatively light footprint, a relatively few soldiers from all nations, all Western nations on the ground. Um, that that number, I think, should have been increased to an extent, not vastly, but to an extent, um, instead of withdrawing them. And, and the effect of withdrawing them, in direct answer to your question, is that we now face, I think, a greater terrorist threat than we faced before 9-11. We've got Taliban victorious, celebrating, inv in, invigorated. We've got Al-Qaeda in large presence there. Al-Qaeda fighters sometimes fought alongside the Taliban. We have an Islamic State presence in Afghanistan. We will have more jihadists there. The Taliban have already released thousands of jihadists from jail. They will present a continued threat. Um, on top of which, the Taliban victory has inspired great celebration around the world among jihadists. And if you just go to one place, Gaza, the Hamas have been celebrating fervently the uh, the victory of the Taliban, and that applies around different jihadist groups. And that will inspire them, it will invigorate them, it will re-energize them, and they will become more dangerous now, I believe, in all of our countries as a result of that. And other jihadist movements which want to achieve similar success as the Taliban will also be inspired by the withdrawal of all of our forces. So, uh, and thousands of jihadists, I think, will pour into Afghanistan as they did before 9-11 in order to train, prepare, plan, and receive direction to carry out attacks against the West. So in, in net terms, that means the threat is greater than it was before 9-11, probably the greatest we've seen since the height of the Islamic State, uh, when they occupied large areas of Syria uh, and Iraq. And, and it's made greater because they now know we are not going to um, to re-enter Afghanistan. The West is not going to intervene again in Afghanistan, with the exception, possibly, of uh, occasional airstrikes at targets that threaten the West. Um, but all of that will be made much more difficult because of a lack of military and diplomatic presence on the ground, which will make our intelligence services, their operations, far harder to achieve. So we will have a smaller, a much smaller picture of what's happening in Afghanistan, as well as in Pakistan and in Iran, both of which countries we uh, have very good cause to be concerned about. Uh, and if, if for example, the, the instability in Afghanistan spreads, the jihadist action spread into Pakistan in particular, which has got its own insurgency problem, then that does risk a uh, nuclear weapons, of course, nu pa Pakistan is a nuclear armed state, nuclear material falling into the hands of jihadists, which has been a major concern of the West since 9-11. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, that, the threat is enormous and it can't be countered 
remotely. It can't be countered by new technology. It can't be countered um, by purely from the air, although it can to an extent. But I don't believe we will have the intelligence capability in Afghanistan to 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 enable targeting, correct and, and, and comprehensive targeting, as as is required. Um, so yeah, the, the tech, modern technology has made a huge difference, but it does not solve the problem of not having a physical presence in Afghanistan. I think the the um, the, the, the re resistance movement that's forming in the Panjshir Valley under the former first uh, Vice President Saleh and also uh, Ahmed Massad, the former the, the son of the former leader of the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud. Um, I think they, you know, that 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 is potentially um, um, which we hasn't yet developed into armed resistance against the Taliban, but could do, is one of a few opportunities that our intelligence services might have to get greater access in the country that we're now leaving. In his first speech after the takeover of Afghanistan by the brutal Taliban, President Biden defended his decision to withdraw, and blamed what happened on the Afghans' refusal to fight. He said that the U.S. can't provide Afghans with the will to fight for their future. That seems to be completely different than the experience you had, where you say that uh, tens of thousands of Afghans lost their lives over the years fighting for their country. The figure of 50,000 that I mentioned is only in the last seven years. The total figure is probably closer to 70 or 80,000 Afghan soldiers killed, which is a phenomenal number. And I think the, the president in his speech, effectively accusing the Afghan forces of cowardice, was uh, a pretty disgraceful thing to say about soldiers that not only that we had trained, we, the Americans and the Brits had trained and other countries, but also our, our soldiers, American soldiers, British soldiers had fought and died alongside these men. Um, and and to malign them in that way, I thought was really a pretty disgraceful thing to say. Um, now the, the reality is that they're not comparable to U.S. and and uh, British forces. They're they're just different. They're just not like us. Um, they don't fight like us. Uh, and and I think above all, they had enormous reliance on the U.S. presence. Just the U.S. presence. U.S. air power was important. Special forces support was important, logistics, technical support, all that was very, very important. But the most important thing was that the United States was there behind them and that they, they knew they could rely, they could depend on the United States. And that, I think more than anything else, motivated them to fight on. And when that, was, when that rug was pulled out from under their feet, literally just a few weeks ago, um, they collapsed. Their morale collapsed. Morale in war is the single most important factor. Napoleon said the moral is to the physical as three is to one, which meant that morale is three times as important as all other factors, all other aspects affecting warfare combined. And he was right. And so that, that I think, directly led to the collapse. But in addition to that, uh, I think people possibly miss under or possibly underestimated that the, the reality of the afghan forces they were not there to fight for afghanistan they were there they were they they're tribal people they fought for their tribes often if they were in one area of afghanistan they didn't really know why they were fighting for that part of afghanistan because they didn't really see afghanistan as a whole country 
but nevertheless the us presence the allied presence there um kind of to an extent overcame that that problem but when it went the problem reverted and they you know they they they, they were also not they really weren't there to fight for afghanistan they were they were actually being paid they they were there because they were being paid to do it um and actually they weren't being paid half the time and that also lowered their morale and didn't give them confidence in the central government in kabul uh, so you know taking those factors into account but particularly i think crucially the us presence uh, even though it was tiny the us presence um kept them fighting you yourself have stood up for afghan nationals who helped the united kingdom in this war you've called out um you've demanded that the United Kingdom stand up to its commitment that they made to these Afghan nationals who helped them to bring them uh, into the United Kingdom. You've spoken now about how the Afghan national forces um, fought alongside of you. You're passionate about it. Uh, In America as well, uh, several mainstream media organizations have sent a letter to President Biden demanding that we honor our commitment to those who put their lives on the line, not just on the military side, but also those who acted as translators and helped our mainstream media organizations. What would stop any country, the United States, United Kingdom, whoever, from honoring its commitment to Afghans who put their lives and the lives of their family at risk and bring them to safety? Uh, what's, is this about politics? Is it about manpower? Is it about the fact that we left too quickly and can't pull it together? What do you think's going on? Well, I think... Um just to reiterate the importance of these people to our fight the interpreters in particular but also other local employees who worked for us in the 20-year campaign but in particular the interpreters enabled us to fight we would not have been able to operate with the effectiveness we did without those interpreters most british and american soldiers can't speak any of the local languages most afghan people don't speak english so they were essential to, 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 to communicate, to achieve our mission, to communicate with the population, to communicate with the leadership, all of that, vital. Uh, but not only that, they also had a sense of local awareness of local threats, local situations, what one person meant when he said this, as opposed to what he actually said, what he really meant, all these sort of things, which helped to save the lives of many of our soldiers. Many of our soldiers are alive today because of Afghan interpreters who alerted them to threats they wouldn't have picked up themselves because they didn't understand the local situation. And so to, to, to neglect them, to, to fail to, um, to rescue them from the undoubted fate they will face because they will be high on the list for execution. And some of them, many of them already have been executed by the Taliban. So to, you know, they, they, must, they, they should have been saved and the, that process should have started from the moment President Biden decided to withdraw because it's a mammoth task. And no matter how much efficiency and energy and effort is going into the evacuation process now, we will not get them all out. It's as simple as that. Um, and, and in answer to your question, I think really uh, there, there was no, there is no strategic or military logic that I know of for, for making this withdrawal, this total withdrawal, unconditional, not based on anything on the ground, not based on the political situation, but based totally on a desire to withdraw. I think it's it's purely a political decision um, and, and it's about electoral success. And I think that's really a shameful uh, reason for, for putting people's lives in jeopardy and actually guaranteeing ending some people's lives who didn't need to die. Um, 
And, and, you know, I think there was a misunderstanding and a misappreciation of the real situation in Afghanistan um, given to President Biden by some of his advisors and to our prime minister as well. That he, he also did not understand the, the, the likelihood of this total collapse we're seeing. I think that's very clear from, from speeches and comments they've both made. Um, and so I think, you know, I think the, 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 the motivation and, or the, the failure to, to consider withdrawing them was based on a misappreciation that the expectation this was not going to happen as it happened. They, I think neither President Biden nor Prime Minister Johnson in Britain had any expectation that the collapse would come so quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the net effect of, of, I think, overriding political considerations and also a misunderstanding, a misappreciation of both the threat from the Taliban and the capability of the Afghan forces and the cohesion of the Afghan government led to the situation we're in today. Richard, you mentioned um, Gaza. People criticized the peace plan that the Trump administration put forth for Israel and the Palestinians. But one of the things that this drives home to me, this situation in Afghanistan, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that we were very careful to make sure that Israel's security would remain sacrosanct which means what we had developed is we said, Palestinians, if you were to get a state and you do your job well and you secure the Palestinian society and make sure that um, there are no threats to Israel or to Jordan or to Egypt or elsewhere, things will be just fine. But we also recognize that this region in particular, but all around the world, has bad people. You have Hamas, Houthis, Hezbollah, Taliban, there are bloodthirsty terrorists that exist all over the world. And what we didn't want to do is ask Israel, which is already in a very precarious security situation, to take a risk that the Palestinians who have no, not the decades-long experience that Israel has in dealing with these terrorist threats, to trust that the Palestinians could not only come up to speed, but always would be up to speed. And it seems to me that this just proves that how we created the security option for Israel, let the Palestinians do what they can as long as they can, but if they fail because Hamas or some other successor to Hamas tries to make trouble, then Israel would have to come in with its deep experience and protect its own country. Does Afghanistan sort of prove the point that there are terrible people all over the place and we can't second-guess a country's desire to protect its citizens ever? I think it does really underline that point. I mean, many of us, you and I included, were well aware of this problem before the current situation evolved. And that's why the, 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 the peace plan under the current administration was designed in the way it was. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting anecdote, actually, about this in, in, in that Secretary of State Kerry, under the Obama administration, invited President, Prime Minister Netanyahu to go to Afghanistan in disguise to observe the training and operations of the Afghan National Security Forces to show the Prime Minister of Israel what could be achieved in developing security forces among the Palestinians so they could protect themselves rather than the, um, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, being deployed in the West Bank. Um, and you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think quite rightly, declined the invitation. Uh, and had he gone there, I suspect he would have probably had a more um, accurate picture of what um, what the truth about the Afghan security forces was, um, which would have made it made him, e I think, even more determined to follow the policy that Israel has always followed 
and I hope will always follow, which is to protect themselves by themselves. Yes, they have, um, you know, considerable financial support and technological support from the US and, and to an extent from Britain as well, uh, to a much smaller extent. But um, but they, they you know, in in the, in the final analysis, they have their own security forces who protect the state of Israel, not depending on anyone else, not depending on local forces, not depending on U.S. forces being deployed or anything. And I would say, if anything, this situation in Afghanistan really does underline the wisdom of that long-standing policy. To take it uh, one more step, I remember that there was a plan. I think it was under Secretary Kerry's uh, period of trying to get technology to safeguard Israel in the Jordan Valley. And I never thought that that was realistic, for different reasons, by the way, because technology can break, technology gets um, outdated, uh, blackouts. There are so many reasons why I don't know why anybody would rely on securing its country only with technology. It could be an interesting early warning system, it could be a backup, but only with technology seemed to me to be a crazy idea. But now having watched this unfold, I think Israel would have signed almost a death warrant if it would have agreed to a a technology-only security barrier, even if there are troops allowed to be stationed a certain amount of, uh, you know, miles away as a backup, which I understood the plan included as well. But I think Afghanistan, to me, shows that we have to trust any country, Israel or whoever, to do its own security um, analyses and fight for itself and make sure that they're secure and not demand of any country to sort of lay down in a certain way and, uh, and, and trust that all will be okay. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I remember the plan that you're talking about, which was devised by the very distinguished US General John Allen of the United States Marine Corps. Um, and his plan was dependent almost exclusively on, on technology, on barriers, fences, sensors, etc. Um, plus the deployment of US soldiers to replace IDF, which clearly um, was was something that was untenable, really. I think it would have been for the US, and it certainly was for Israel. Um, but on the technology point, it goes back to what we were discussing before, that, um, you know, forces, boots on the ground, forces on the ground are essential to maintain the integrity of, of national security. And relying on technology, even, the more, even far more advanced technology today than, than existed when that plan was drawn up, um, I, I don't believe that's the answer at all. I think, you know, we do need it and it's very, very uh, useful. And it, it provides many, many of the answers, but it doesn't provide the whole answer. The, the answer's got to be provided by military forces. And, and I think, you know, okay, technology wasn't really that much involved in the, the most recent events. It had some role in particularly things like air support and intelligence provided by the US to the Afghan forces played a significant role and the withdrawal of that played a major role in its collapse but there is there still is even in the 21st century with all the massive technological advances we've got there still is no substitute for armed forces on the ground or available to be on the ground we're all shocked and dismayed at the citizens u.s citizens um, other country citizens that have been stranded there the afghans who helped us all who are stranded there and their families but what of the equipment i mean i'm seeing pictures of humvees drones, all sorts of U.S. military equipment that was left behind that are now in the hands of the Taliban. I forget the damage that could be brought about with them having control of all that equipment. How does something like that happen? Why would we have left that equipment there? 
that's another um another issue that that reinforces my view that the threat is dramatically increased now which i didn't mention before but it, it's certainly a key factor um and and there there are vast quantities of highly sophisticated military equipment that you mentioned drones aircraft of course um vehicles highly sophisticated sensors and fire control systems observation systems day and night observation systems things that are invaluable to the taliban if they can use them obviously some of the afghan national security forces who were trained on this equipment have defected to the taliban or will be forced by the taliban to share their skills on this in exchange for their life um but they will use it. They will utilize it um, in Afghanistan. And what they can't use or what they don't, or they can't use because they're not capable of using it or they don't need, they will certainly sell uh, to other jihadists. Um, and indeed, they will sell They will sell some of the most sophisticated equipment to countries like China and Russia, who will be able to reverse engineer it for their own military benefit, which is another aspect of what's happened is the, is the huge advantage this... Uh, this conflict has handed to China, Russia, and also Iran. And what does this mean for our friends and allies, both of our countries, friends and allies in the region, the GCC countries, Jordan, Israel, and so on? I think what this is telling us, well, there's, not, there's a number of much wider strategic implications to this, one of which is um, that, uh, you know, China, Iran, Russia, and Pakistan will um, gain increased influence in Afghanistan from now on they will use it by they will pillage the country for their resources particularly China um, they will use their their influence now in Afghanistan as much as they can against the West in particular China and Russia and of course all of those four countries China Russia Iran and um, Pakistan they all funded equipped armed and supported the Taliban mainly Pakistan, but those other three countries had a significant role in supporting the Taliban, and they're now going to be cashing their chips in. And as to other countries beyond the region, beyond South Asia, like um, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc., and, and other countries in, in the Middle East, um, they, they will be certainly looking at the US performance behavior in this uh, situation. And they they were already shaken by U.S. support, effectively, and appeasement of Iran, which which is still under the Biden administration, still going ahead trying to appease Iran and get them back into the nuclear deal, which almost guarantees Iran a nuclear weapon uh, program. So they they you know and and also the U.S. withdrawal of effective withdrawal of support for Saudi Arabia, certainly for support of its war, its proxy war with Iran that's taking place in Yemen. Um, the, the, the confidence in the United States, already it was weakened, but it will be shattered by this. Um, and, and, and it will result, I think, you know, certainly if the JCPOA, the nuclear deal comes back in, then it will speed up the arms race, the nuclear arms race that's taking place in the Middle East. Um, it will probably, it will probably uh, cause, I would have thought, um, far greater dependence on Israel as a protector in the region. Uh, which was formerly the U.S. role, um, and it will it will um, probably uh, com also compel or uh, you know, sort of, uh, put a certain amount of pressure on countries like Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia 
um, to to turn more now to China and potentially to Russia as well um, for the kind of support it's lost from um, fr from from the United States or it thinks it might have lost in the United States. And it's 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 not really contradictory to say that you know countries like Saudi Arabia and and Egypt might turn towards China because even though China's in a partnership with Iran at the moment, because it, it kind of doesn't quite work like that. There's, 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 the situation is more complicated than this kind of binary circumstance that we've been used to. So I think, you know, I think if anything, it's it's not only, um, you know, undermined the confidence of uh, those countries in the US, but, but compelling them almost to turn to the foes of the US, Russia and China. And, and that, that, that uh, switch is um is is true in the in the whole world and you know one of president biden's reason for pulling out of afghanistan was to be able to exert uh, to apply more resources to confronting russia and china but actually it has the opposite effect to that because the, the i mean the resources in afghanistan were negligible in terms of what is needed to to pressurize uh, to to confront china and russia but the effect it will have it will embolden china and russia they already are pushing the envelope in many areas in how far they can push against the west and that the, the fear of western retaliation i think uh, and reaction to that i think will be diminished now particularly us reaction um and and and, and secondly it will um it will give give pause to those countries the countries that are currently either in or considering going into the sphere of influence of Russia and China, the authoritarian states, uh, those that we were trying to entice many of them into our sphere of influence. And um, that's gone. They, they will be thinking, why would, we, why would we join these people who are fair weather friends when our, our potential allies in Russia and China are far more reliable, which it appears at the moment they are, I'm sorry to say. So, you know, there's that, there's that, um, that strategic implication, which I think is very significant, and the second, uh, the the other strategic implication, I think, is is to to do with NATO. NATO was responsible for the for the mission in Afghanistan. NATO has been wholly undermined by this. The British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he says in recent days, he said he had tried to cobble together a coalition of NATO states, excluding the U.S to remain together in Afghanistan after the US withdrew. And he got no takers, not one single NATO nation was prepared to stand alongside Britain remaining in Afghanistan. Now, I'm not saying that that, that suggestion was actually realistic, I don't think it was, but what it does show is that NATO is now a paper tiger. Um, and, and really what NATO is, is the United States of America with a certain amount of window dressing around the edges in the form of the other NATO members. Now, that may be a very harsh assessment, but I think that's the way it's going to be seen by a lot of our foes who, who to an extent, have been, I wouldn't say fearful exactly, but always concerned about the deterrent effect of a, a very, very, what, what was thought to be a very significant and powerful military alliance. Let's set aside for the moment how we got to where we are. We're in a mess. As a military person, if you were sitting in the Oval Office right now and uh, had the ability to give President Biden advice, what would you tell him we need to do at the moment to, to fix temporarily the problem, which is get all the people to safety, deal with the, all the sensitive military equipment, but also long-term understanding that maybe we don't want to be in Afghanistan 
to protect us against future threats? What's the right answer here, or is there none? <laughs> the answer is, I think I would say it's highly complicated, but to spare um, your your listeners um, that, that pain, I would say that um, in terms of, of resolving the immediate situation, uh, I would be, if I, if, I, if I was advising President Biden or Prime Minister Johnson, I would suggest that they put in now as many possible resources as they can to expedite the evacuation of um, as many people as possible, as many people who have worked with us, who have, uh, who are you know British or American citizens, or and so, I mean, when I say British American, I apply this to all the other Western allies as well who were involved there, um, and 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 people like human rights workers and women's rights workers who may not have been working directly for us, but who were only too happy to to brandish their work around the media, showing how successful we've been in Afghanistan. So we have a right, a responsibility to them, who will also be extreme targets for the Taliban. And, and do what we can to destroy whatever military equipment remains in Afghanistan. Now, that's not easy and it's not going to be that successful. It would probably have to wait until um, all the, all the uh, evacuees had left. But, but, you know, things like airstrikes against uh, concentrations of military vehicles and drones, etc., if they're still uh, in identifiable locations, I think is, is quite important. If it's possible, it's probably not. In the longer term, I would say that um, the you know we we now really have 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 abrogated any influence that we had in Af or we did have a lot of influence but we've we've now basically abrogated all of our influence in Afghanistan um, so we can't directly in my opinion influence the Taliban except by freezing assets and um, and imposing sanctions and things of that sort. Um, I think, you know, I don't think that will be that successful either, because the, the new best friends of the Taliban now, I think, will be China, um, who will who, who will be able to wield significant financial incentives on it, on the Taliban. Um, and in the longer term, I think um, we what we in order to try and influence the behavior of the Taliban, I think we only have one option beyond that, which is to to put as much collective international pressure as we can on countries like China, Russia, Pakistan, and to a lesser extent, Iran, uh, to, to, to themselves apply pressure to the Taliban and use their newfound influence with the Taliban to try and persuade them to be, I, I wouldn't say to be respectful of human rights, because they won't be, but to at least modify their behavior. And I'm not optimistic that would work either, but I think it's the only influence we do have to 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 put to 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 apply whatever possible intelligence assets we have to the situation in Afghanistan, in order to, as I sort of touched on before, in order to conduct airstrikes when necessary against concentrations of of forces which um, which could threaten or of terrorists which could threaten us, uh, and to. Um, also, you know, I just I gave one example earlier on, which is to try and and uh, you know use some form of leverage with the, the the reforming Northern Alliance in the Panjshir Valley, who will be able to give us much greater situational knowledge of this of the country than 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 we could get otherwise through through purely technical means. And I think I don't I don't think in the in the immediate term we've got any other options for. Um, for, for for trying to 
kind of unscramble the situation. Uh, other than potentially, there is always the potential of looking at the idea of humanitarian corridors, refuges, safe havens, things like that. Um, all very complicated. These things have been used in other countries, but this is a very, very different and I think much more challenging environment, environment to be attempting anything like that. Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you so much for your insight, for sharing your thoughts and for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been an enormous pleasure. The tragic situation in Afghanistan and the U.S. withdrawal will be studied and discussed for a long time. I hope this episode with Colonel Richard Kemp will serve as a jumping-off point for people to think deeply and honestly about the tragedy in Afghanistan, how the withdrawal was handled, and what the future holds for Afghanistan. There are no good answers, but that does not absolve us from the responsibility of trying. According to an article in the Washington Post, 800,000 American service members served in Afghanistan since October 2001. 2,443 U.S. military members died in Afghanistan as of August 2021. 20,666 American service members were wounded in the war effort. It is estimated that over 66,000 Afghan military and national police were killed in the conflict. 47,245 Afghan civilians were killed. 51 countries fought in the Afghanistan war. 1,144 Allied service members died in Afghanistan as of April 2021. Of course, these are not just numbers. Each of these lives lost was a person with their own dreams, hopes, and aspirations. The war destroyed all that. Let's pray for the safety of all those in Afghanistan who are waiting to be evacuated, and for the people of Afghanistan who we hope one day will have a better and more peaceful future. But that day seems further and further away now. If you found this podcast informative, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends and family. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek.